Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast. In this podcast, we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we do tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors too. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Alan Collins. I'm part of the Hugh James Abuse Team and I'm joined today by my colleague Sam Barker. Hello. We've been running a series of podcasts into sexual abuse in religious contexts, but rather than focus on those which are often reported in the media, we are going to discuss religions which seem to us but are quite often overlooked. And in a series of podcasts that we're going to be doing over the coming weeks, we're going to look at Judaism, Islam, and the Baptists, and probably in that order. So make sure you tune in and and listen. The background to all of this, um, Sam and I were having a discussion about all of this, is ICSA, the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse. And it has part of its exercise, the Truth Project. And... The prevalence of sexual abuse in religious institutions has recently been highlighted by the Truth Project's thematic report. And in that report, it states that Judaism and Islam represented only 1% respectively of the sample analysed. So that got us thinking. Does this mean those religions have less of a problem with child sexual abuse than other religions? The results from what we've been looking into would seem to suggest otherwise. And I think at this point, I'm going to get you, Sam, to tell us about what you found when you looked at what has been going on in the United States and the research that's been undertaken there. So I'm going to hand over to you, Sam, to take us on to the US. Thank you, Alan. I'll try to not make it too boring with going through things like statistics and all of that. Look, what we've found from reading through a bunch of these studies, which, um, as you said, Alan, were conducted in the United States, is that this this one percent wouldn't necessarily kind of ring true to what these reports find. So the first one we looked at was a United States study by Dr. David Rosamarin of Harvard and Dr. David Pelkovitz of Yeshiva University. And that is entitled Childhood Sexual Abuse, Mental Health and Religion Across the Jewish Community. That report posits that the prevalence of any form of child sexual abuse within the Jewish faith was statistically equivalent to the national rates. So that would kind of sit at odds with the results from the Truth Project, we would think. So we decided we want to look into this a bit further. And perhaps it's representative of a wider problem in relation to underreporting. And in fact, there's some really good studies, again, in the United States about this. So, Alan, that's what what we're going to look into today, underreporting in the Jewish faith. And Alan, generally speaking, aside from the Jewish community itself, what are your views on underreporting within religious contexts generally? Underreporting, in my experience, and it is only my experience, is a big issue because religion seems to get in the way of a person's ability to report. So you find, or I have found, that there is a sense 
often of guilt. So guilt is imposed through religious teaching, societal teaching and societal attitudes so that the victim, usually a child, feels responsible for the abuse that's been inflicted upon them by the adult. So it's misplaced guilt, obviously, but nevertheless, the guilt is felt and it's a real feeling. There's often feelings of shame. There's also concerns about what would happen if a report is made. And in the person's ambit, it's a personal ambit, there's often people from their religious community and that brings its own pressures. And also getting back to the actual teaching of religion, you get cases where the victim is told to forgive their abuser or the victim is told, well, it was your fault, you're the sinner. So you can get some very muddled, confused thinking. And it's muddled and confused thinking not on just the part of the victim, but also on the part of those who are in positions of authority who should be taking the appropriate action as regards the complaints that they've received instead of offloading onto the victim. So those are common themes that I find in my experience when representing victims of child abuse who've been abused in some kind of religious setting or where religion somehow is a very dominant feature in the story, in the account. Yeah, and look, the... I want to, on the back of what you were saying there, I actually want to highlight a, an extract from this article. And I'll, I'll read out what the, the name of the article is. This is following on from what we were talking about at the start, where the Harvard report and Yeshiva University report found that the the prevalence of sexual abuse was statistically equivalent to national rates with, within the Jewish faith. Going on from that and the idea of underreporting, I was able to find an article by a David Katzenstein of... Uh, pronunciation is probably terrible there, of New York University and uh, Lisa Fontes of the University of Massachusetts. And that article is twice silenced the underreporting of child sexual abuse in Orthodox Jewish communities. Now, Alan, just to go back to what you were talking about before, one thing that I read in the opening line, uh, well, not the opening line, the opening paragraphs of that report, I think rings really true to what you were talking about there. And it states where religious authorities do not follow their legal obligations to report CSA, child sexual abuse, those children who are isolated from institutions outside the religious community, such as when they are schooled either at home or in religious institutions, appear to be at special risk for continued abuse over over time without intervention. Now, this is particularly relevant to a lot of things we've talked about in this podcast and not particular, you know, not specific to the Jewish community or the Orthodox Jewish community as well. Now, we've seen this with Jehovah's Witness community and other institutions and religions we've, um, we've looked into. So I think that's, that's an interesting way to start it out and certainly backs up what you were talking about there, Alan. And this report goes further and highlights a lot of what you said there, Alan, about stigmatism, fear and intimidation, shame, gender roles within religious institutions. And that's what creates, generally speaking, underreporting in many faiths and certainly minority faiths. But in the context of Judaism, the authors highlight 
one very interesting point I thought, and that is something that I knew nothing about. And I'm going to, I'm going to summarize this on very high level as I'm not an expert in this area at all. But um, these are the laws of Masira and Loshon Hara. Hora. You're going to have to explain that, certainly for me, Sam. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't want to offend anybody with my uh, pronunciation, so I do apologise in advance. Now, the law of Masira equates to communication with secular authorities to report another Jewish person's transgressions with treason. So it, equ- it equates that kind of report with treason, which is obviously a very significant and severe offence. What does this mean? Uh, in our view, that would mean that just like in other um, religious institutions that we've seen that want to protect the reputation of the religion, that to turn around and report somebody internally to a secular authority like the police for something they've done would be seen as a serious sin, serious misgiving. So that law is something that the authors of this report say um, feeds into underreporting, as does Loshon Hora, which is a prohibition against speaking ill of others and is often considered to be, as the authors have stated, the reasons why abusers cannot be publicly named. So Loshon Hara is a serious biblical sin that encompasses all manner of speech, including gossip, slander, and derogatory speech against a fellow fellow Jewish person in the faith. So these two things are elements that are very specific to that religion that might well, um, or at least the authors think, feed into these overarching themes that look, which is a reason for underreporting within that faith. I should state here that in 2003, the Rabbinical Council of America said that reporting sexual abuse does not violate any of those laws, and many rabbis have spoken out that, that those laws are inapplicable to the use in cases of CSA. But you know, in my view, we need to look at the practical realities of such laws and the inherent effect they would have on people, and particularly young people within the faith, who you know, adherence to these kind of laws, this kind of stri- scripture, has really been drilled into them from a young age, and that's across the board with other religious institutions, where you see something said publicly about a law and how it doesn't apply to this specific thing like CSA, but in practice, we see in fact that that's not the case. Well, that's very interesting. And as I'm listening to you um, explain all of that, I'm just sort of thinking from my own childhood, you know, when you're taught not to speak ill of others, and that's, you know, you're taught that. And then getting back to my sort of professional life, and when victims from a, a sort of religious background explained that they went and said something at, you know, church or school or, or, or whatever, the adult um, would say, don't you dare speak about x like that so you know that is very powerful deterrent not to say anything again you know because you're being told off for wanting to say something unpleasant even though it's true you're told no don't because you're speaking ill of somebody even though you're not speaking ill of somebody because you're actually speaking the truth about an adult doing something terribly wrong but because you've been sort of conditioned, I guess, to try and do the right thing all the time and be reasonable and polite and behave well and so on, it undermines your ability uh, as a survivor, as a victim, to then go and say something of that nature within your community. It's, very, it's a very powerful deterrent. 
Yeah, absolutely it is. I even remember that from my childhood. And, um, you know, I think we see nowadays, hopefully times are changing a tiny bit in relation to that kind of message, you know, particularly about speaking out against adults. We've seen that that's been a real problem over the years, over the decades, really, in relation to um, children not being believed and also children not thinking they should say anything about what an adult's done. Look, going back to this topic, we're talking about the the Jewish faith and, and CSA within that kind of religion. I think that it's interesting to just note what the, the authors of the, the report about underreporting conclude. And that and they say here that while the Catholic Church is structurally one centralized institution with a single authoritative figurehead, and in a way this differs from the array of institutions in Orthodox Jewish communities, nevertheless the pro- the propensity to protect the reputation of communities, institutions and leaders over protecting and safeguarding children is sadly similar. So we're looking there at these authors who have conducted this study and they are saying that the same problems exist as exist in the Catholic Church and many others. And that is a useful segue into a, a very specific case I wanted to talk about. Alan, this is the case of from my home state of Victoria called Ehrlich and Leifer. Have you ever heard of this case? I have to confess that until we started working on this podcast that I had not. So you've given me a brief summary of what the case was all about and the implications and ramifications and consequences and so on. So it sounded fascinating. So um, just because I found it fascinating doesn't mean to say that the listeners will find it fascinating. So um, make it fascinating, Sam. Mm. I I think that hopefully many of the listeners will find it not only fascinating, but it'll lead to a general sense of outrage in relation to this kind of conduct. Um, this is feeding into exactly what I was saying before about, I'm um, sorry, what I read before, this, the conclusion of that report, where there is a prote- propensity to protect the reputation of communities, institutions and leaders. So with that in mind, I'm going to give a quick summary of this case. And I think that it was you know, really well summed up in an article by The Australian uh, 2017 story which noted that the claimant, well referred to as Ehrlich, was only 15 years old and no one in her ultra-Orthodox Adas Jewish neighbourhood in East St Kilda, which is a suburb of Victoria, knew that she was being abused by the doyen of that community. The respected principal of the Adas Israel School, whose name was Malka Leifer. Now, the Australian goes on to explain that Ehrlich would have to reject the tightly knit religious community of barely 2,000 people and all she had known in order to seek justice. Then came police statements, the court case, the million dollars in damages, and the stunning news that the community leaders had spirited Lifer out of Australia in the dead of the night to Israel, where she continues to evade justice. In a cruel twist, Ehrlich also learnt that two girls close to her were abused by the same woman. Now... This case really represents a lot of what can go seriously wrong when the police are not involved from the outset. The case has garnered international notoriety, not only due to the sexual abuse, but in my view, the sheer disrespect for the law of the land and the survivor herself shown by those community leaders who assisted life at being able to escape to Israel before she was arrested. So... That's the background of all of that. How does that make you feel, Alan, about the background of that case? Yeah, no, well, you know, um, I'm aware of other cases that we've dealt with over the years where 
because matters have not been reported, the abuser has been moved on. Of course, we all know about the Catholic cases where abusers have effectively been protected, uh, um, shielded and evaded justice for years, if not decades. And not, it's not just the Catholic Church as well. There's been other religions and religious institutions as, as well where the body politic, so to speak, has put the interests of the abuser for example, a priest, a monk, whatever, before that of the the victim, the survivor or survivors. And there have been cases where the religious community has actually protected the abuser or alleged abuser and have shunned the victim, the survivor. And of course, it is, it's you know, it smacks of everything that is wrong. It's appalling. And it's actually, when I'm talking about all of this, I can't believe that I'm actually having to say it. Because you would think it just would not happen. It would just would not happen in any part of society. But this case of Leifa clearly illustrates what can happen and why it is so wrong. So back to you, Sam. Absolutely, it does. And I think also the in the context of this podcast, really to focus on this case um, is extremely helpful because it's a case study which shows what kind of problems can exist in tight-knit religious communities that don't want that kind of, I guess, reproach to be brought on their community through publicity and instead try to deal with it themselves. Now, this ended up in the Victorian Supreme Court before a former Justice Jack Rush, who, um, in a great judgment, analysed in detail the structure of the school, the community and the role that the principal lifer had in that community. He rejected evidence that secular and religious studies were equally important, finding that the strategic plan of the school was to, amongst other aims, produce graduates who are able to preserve Orthodox Jewish traditions and, and practices and pass them on to the next generation. And I think that's telling in of itself. In If that's the primary concern of the school, then for it to come out that the principal of the school who was considered such an authority within the community, so much so that Jack Rush found that she was the operating mind and will of the school, had been sexually abusing students within that school, that was obviously something that they did not want to come to terms with or admit that happened. It followed that a lot of evidence was heard, obviously trying to shift a lot of the blame to show that they didn't sweep her away just to avoid justice. But regardless, Jack Rush found that the sequence of events that was outlined was extraordinary and he was unable to understand what sort of legal obligation was required for the school to pay for the affairs of LIFA. A very telling finding there, given that Jack Rush is a, is a notable and very experienced QC in Victoria who was a judge at the time. If he's not been able to find the legal obligations which required the school to pay for the airfares, then I would say that there probably was not a legal obligation. Nevertheless, um, she left the country. Jack Rush awarded Ehrlich one mil- just, just slightly over $1 million in damages that the school had to pay. So, look, uh, in terms of civil justice, great result there and obviously a needed result. But now we're looking at the criminal case. Lifer remains at large. She remains in Israel. She has been able to resist numerous extradition requests and proceedings, and the most recent one being in June 2018, following which Lifer was placed under house arrest and under supervision of a local rabbi rather than being sent back to Australia. You know, in my view, 
and I'm sure the view that would be shared by a lot of people is patently unjust and she ought to be extradited and face the Australian courts for her crimes. A couple of um, points spring to mind on all of that, of course, is number one is it seems to me that normally good law-abiding people allow their thought processes to come completely skewered um, and adrift, you know, because who on earth would think that that was the right thing to do in order to protect this person? No right-minded thinking person thinking rationally would come to the conclusion that we needed to protect this person and spirit her away to Israel. Second point to make is, of course, is that this is a classic vicarious liability case because the employer, the school, would be responsible for the sins and misdeeds, in this case, of um, Lifa, you know, the, abu- the, the, the abuser. You know, she was found to have done these things and she was able to do so through her work, so to speak. So it's a classic case of vicarious liability. And the third point or question that comes to mind what is it that stops the Israeli authorities from extraditing? She says she's unwell, she's sick. Right, so, right, okay, well, there we go. You know, it's, again, you know, it's through delay, deliberate delay, um, justice being denied. But at least through the High Court in Victoria, the victim, the plaintiff, was able to get some semblance of justice, even though it's clearly imperfect. Absolutely. And, you know, I've got to say here with this, this, this claimant, Ehrlich, you know, just to pay her the absolute respect that she's due. You know, she's gone out in the media. She's faced a very tight-knit, closed community who she's essentially gone against. Um, she's sued the school. She hasn't protected her anonymity. She has flown to Israel on at least one occasion to advocate for the return of Lifer to Australia to be prosecuted. So I think she is, you know, somebody who we should really pay a lot of respect to in this podcast because she is um, doing all the things that I think somebody who could want to receive some justice would need to do. I would echo that. And thanks, Sam, for a interesting summary of what is clearly an extraordinary case. So thank you very much, podcast listeners. As always, if you have got any questions or thoughts or want to talk to us about any aspect of this particular podcast or any of our podcasts then please do get in touch thank you all for listening as i said this is going to be a three-part series uh the next one we'll be looking into um which will probably come in the next few weeks is what are we looking to islam Islam. that's right i was trying to look at my notes to find out what we're doing next um it's gonna be a three-part series and then finish with baptists this is following on from the truth projects report so please tune in thank you all Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify and Google Play. If you would like to speak to Alan or I about something you have heard this week, or even if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please do get in touch at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk. 